How can we truly understand the Bible and apply its lessons to our lives and others if we don't fully understand the true context behind the passages we read? Today, Eric Bargerhuff is going to share the importance of understanding the true context of Bible passages that seem to be well-known, yet very misunderstood. We all know that parenting is hard work and life can get busy. We've done the research to help you. So let's dig deep with Leanne Mancini and work together to help you raise strong Christian kids. Hello, Raising Christian Kids family. I am so excited to interview the distinguished Dr. Bargerhuff, who serves as the Vice President for Academic Affairs and Professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of Florida. He has served there for 10 years and prior to that served in pastoral ministries for over 20 years. He is the author of four books and has an interest in writing easy to understand books that encourage believers to interpret scripture correctly in its original context. He loves Jesus, his wife, Jennifer, his two sons, Joshua and Andrew, the Chicago Cubs and Indiana basketball. Welcome to the show. I'm so delighted to be with you, Leanne. Thank you for the invitation. Well, let's start right off the bat. I want you to tell us about yourself, your position at Shepherd's Theological Seminary and Trinity College of Florida. Well, thanks. My my main role is Vice President for Academic Affairs and Professor of Bible and Theology here at Trinity College of Florida. We're right outside of Tampa. And as one of the things I also do, I have the privilege of serving as a, a professor of theology in an adjunct role for Shepherd's Theological Seminary out of Cary, North Carolina. And so you could kind of deduce from that that my heart is in teaching and in teaching theology and scripture and educating the, the next generation of leaders and, and students that are growing in their faith and are equipping them for ministry in the local church and abroad. I have the privilege of being able to go into the classroom and just unpack the Word of God for my students and watch them grasp these principles and these theological truths about who God is, because that's really what's going to shape their hearts, their minds, their their whole understanding of life, their worldview. And I have that just great privilege to do that here, uh, and I look forward to doing it the rest of my days. Absolutely. It's so important that we teach them true biblical concepts and, and, and help them to see false theology and misunderstandings. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I, I see so often from a lot of students that have come to the college and or are going to the seminary is that some of them have come from churches that have primarily taught them topically. And, and it's okay to understand what does the Bible teach about a particular subject and topically, but oftentimes topical preaching, which does have its place in the church, topical preaching doesn't always allow the the listener or even the reader to understand the full context of where a particular passage of scripture is coming from. And, And I think for us to be able to understand what the Bible is literally saying to us, we have to fully understand the broader context of what uh, the author of scripture intended for the original audience to hear. Because the tendency is to just kind of what we call henpeck, go through the Bible and pick out a verse that sounds good to you, that you like, that may work for you the way you want it to, or, or say something that specifically strikes you. 
But but if we don't understand what the Holy Spirit through the apostles or the prophets originally intended the scripture to mean, then we're missing out on the blessing that God has for us because scripture is designed to be our source of sanctification and, and changing us to make us more like Christ. And I think that's why we're finding a lot of our youth walking away when they go oh. into college, a secular college, or even oh. a college that claims to be Christian-based sometimes, they're not being fed properly or deeply enough the Word of God to understand it and to apply it. And could you tell us about your two very informative books, Why Is That in the Bible? and The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. Those are two great books. I loved both of them. They were very informative. And what would you say are the top three most misused Verses in the Bible. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, I wrote that first book you just mentioned, the most misused verses in the Bible, ten years ago. It's coming up on its tenth anniversary of being released, and it's still in print, and you can pick it up on Amazon or online or even your local bookstore. But it is one of those books that I think grabs people's attention because it tries to uh, take some of the most popular verses that people love and put it in its proper context. And I, I don't intend to break anybody's bubble or pop anyone's bubble, so to speak, if you would use that kind of language, but it's more just the idea of, I want to teach people that these verses don't always mean what they think it means. And we use them oftentimes out of context. And and of course, you know, some of the most famous ones that any of us could rattle off the top of our heads would be one like Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged where Jesus is talking about a certain type of judgment, hypocrisy, where people would condemn others for doing the same things that they themselves were doing. And so it's not uh, one of those verses that can be used as a shield for sin, like you have no right to hold me accountable or, or anything like that, because it is, it is designed for us to look introspectively into our own lives, but yet we still have an obligation to hold one another as Christians to, to moral standards. And in fact, we do that when we select elders and deacons in the church. We actually look at their life, make a moral assessment of them, and see if they're qualified biblically, morally, to be leaders in the church. So we do make moral assessments of one another, and we do hold one another accountable. Ultimately, we know that God is the one who is going to judge each one of us, but we do have a responsibility towards one another. And we as Christians ought to have the idea that we want others to come to us. If they see something in our life that is not God honoring, that is not glorifying to God, or that could hinder our growth, we would want someone to come into our, our sphere of influence and say, hey, look, you know, I see something in you that you, you might want to look at and be aware of so that you can maybe confess that to God or seek forgiveness from God so that it doesn't hinder your growth in any way. So I think that we need to understand that that particular verse, judge not, does not mean that we don't have a responsibility towards one another when it comes to sin in our life. Another verse that's often taken out of context is uh, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. We often will have the temptation to import our own definition of good into that verse and then hold God hostage or accountable to, to make that verse apply to us in the way we want it to be applied. But if you look at the context of Romans 8, 28, you'll see that the Apostle Paul is talking about suffering and how we groan inwardly and, and long for our redemption, the redemption of our bodies, even creation itself 
groans along with us for God to complete his salvation in the fullest sense by redeeming our bodies and this earth. And we long for that. But until that day comes, we can know that God is going to work all things together for good, even in our suffering, which means that God is sovereignly weaving all of the good and the bad, the ugly, the the terrible. He's doing it in such a way that it's causing us to grow into Christ's likeness. Because if you look at the next verse, Romans 8.28 is best interpreted by the next verse, because it says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, to become more like Christ. So what, what's happening there is that everything that you and I experience in life, great tragedy, wonderful triumphs, God is sovereignly weaving all of that together to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. One of the ones I heard recently that stuck out to me is I heard this pastor talk about prayer, and he brought up the idea of where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. And of course, that is a truth that God is with his people. He promised us that he would be with us. Jesus said that to disciples at the end of Matthew 28, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But that particular verse in Matthew 18, which is where it's found, is actually talking about how to deal with sin in the church. And it's an approach that Jesus used for the disciples to to address someone one-on-one, to address sin privately. And then if that doesn't work, to take two or three others in the privacy principles to keep the knowledge of someone's sin in the smallest possible circle, but to come alongside them and then gently, lovingly rebuke in a way that seemingly brings them back to repentance, to bring them back into a right relationship with God. And he says, if two or three of the others don't work, then tell it to the church. And this is where the widest number of accountability is, is, is brought into bear on someone who may have, say, for example, run off with in a relationship that's inappropriate, you know, or something like that. And so we're trying to rescue that sheep that has gone astray. And that's obviously the context of Matthew 18. Jesus actually tells that parable of the sheep that's gone astray. So this is the idea of us rescuing someone who is entrapped in some kind of sin. But if they refuse to repent, then Jesus teaches that we should treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which means that they should be not counted as a member in good standing of the church and actually should be expelled or what we would call excommunicated from the body of Christ for the purpose of separating that sin from the whole church so that the whole church doesn't get infected by the sin. And Jesus said, I know it's a difficult thing for this to do. He kind of implies that in the text. And so that's why he assures them. So when two or three are gathered in my name, and that's a judicial principle from the Old Testament, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So this is the assurance to the church that if they have to practice what's called church discipline, Jesus is promising his presence, even in that process, to bless the faithful church who is following through in trying to rescue the one who's gone astray. Yeah, another one I think that's important for families to understand is when we say in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, give you hope, give you future. That applies not just to here, but really it's for eternity. Because then people say, well, I know the plans. He has the plans to prosper me, but look, I'm not prospering and I'm suffering. Our family's suffering. How can this be true? 
Right, because the original context was actually for a people in the Old Testament who were going to 70 years of exile, and they were going to suffer. And many of them in that generation were never going to see the fruition of that promise in their lifetime. It was going to be for their kids or grandkids. And it was all about the people of Israel returning from Babylon after being in exile to, to the nation of Israel, to the land once again. But what we don't want to do with that verse is look at and say plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and apply that in a materialistic sense or a physical sense to us today, because that's not the original context in which it was given. And, and I think it's important for us and our children to fully understand that, because otherwise you'll have atheists or agnostics or whoever, secularists, who will say, well, look, this is what your Bible says, but mm-hmm. I don't see that happening. I see a lot of Christians suffering. And so, we're going back to the same idea of context. Yeah. You know, context is the key to interpretation. We can say that over and over again, because that's really how we're going to understand things rightly and know how to apply it properly to our life. Amen. Amen. Well, what can parents do to protect themselves and their children from this misinformation that seems so right, but maybe has been proven otherwise or misunderstood? I think the best thing that I would say to parents today is to train your kids in the truth and also to teach them to check everything they hear by the word of God. In other words, the Bereans did that when the Apostle Paul was coming through and preaching Christ uh, as the Messiah that was crucified or raised from the dead. The Bereans were Jews that searched what? The Old Testament scriptures, as we know them today, to see if the prophecies that Paul was referring to about Christ were actually true. So knowing the Bible, equipping yourself with what is true and right and honorable and pleasing to God and understanding scripture in its context is the best way to equip your children from hearing about all the crazy ideas that the world has today and to teach them who they are in Christ. I think one of the things that's going on in our culture today is that people don't even know who they are anymore. And identity is such a big issue. But God has made you uniquely you, male or female, and he has a purpose and plan for you. And to understand who you are in Christ and all the blessings you have in Christ are key to shaping the way the kids think about God and themselves. Oh, great stuff. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Leanne. It's an honor to be with you. I pray God's blessings on your podcast. Thank you. And this is how we all work together to raise strong Christian kids. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.